Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Hello. <laughs> How is everybody? Excellent discussion. Marvellous. Um, welcome to uh, Skeptics in the Pub. Usual format for tonight. Talk of about 45 minutes. Uh, break for beer. Questions and answers. Yeah, this is normally the bit where you get told to turn your phone off. We don't do that. Because um, we like to read your tweets. Our hashtag is Oxford SITP. So, yeah, give it up for our speaker night. Tim Miles! Hello, um, it's an enormous pleasure to be here. Uh, but I should say, first of all, that I'm having some problems with my throat. So there's a possibility it may give out halfway through, which will mean this could be the first ever Oxford Skeptics in the pub, which will be completed through the medium of interpretive dance. I just thought I'd warn you now. Um, I do actually have a day job as well. My day job is I'm a lecturer in the Department of English and Drama at the University of Loughborough. So um, I'm used to teaching teenagers. So if you want to shout or heckle or flirt with the person next door to you or check your email during my lecture, that's absolutely fine. Go ahead. Um, But what's kind of more interesting and more relevant is um, I do actually have a PhD in stand-up comedy. Um, And that's actually not an April Fool. I have certificates and everything, Um, which is kind of interesting because I'm actually not a stand-up comic. And I remember my PhD viva with a rather lovely man called Professor Brand Nickel, and he read my thesis, which is called Towards the Phenomenology of Live Stand-Up Comedy Performance, and he looked at my thesis, and he looked at me, and he said, I've never read anything like this in my life. I was slightly nervous at that point, but it went on okay since then. And after I finished my doctorate for a very short period before I became an academic, I had to, uh, I had to sign on. And I remember being in Guildford Job Centre, explaining to the lady from the DSS that I was a doctor of comedy and it was a real thing. And uh, to use the words of Bill Hicks, she sort of looked at me like, like a dog that had just been shown a card trick. <laughs> Um, And that kind of scepticism is not entirely unusual. Uh, There's a rather wonderful American professor called Eddie Tafoya who wrote a book called The Legacy of the White Risecrack, Stand-Up Comedy as a Great Literary, American Literary Form. And um, he talks in his book at one point when he's giving a literature class and he's comparing Dante's Inferno with Richard Pryor's Live on Sunset Strip, my kind of literature professor, and a student shouts out, I want a real literature class. Dante didn't yet yell the word motherfucker in every other sentence, uh, which is true, unless you look at a particularly liberal interpretation from the Italian. <laughs> um, so there is a certain resistance you occasionally get from, in this case, students. Um, Robert Pavine is another professor, a professor of neuroscience, and he wrote a rather wonderful book too, called Laughter, uh, A Scientific Investigation. And in the introduction to his book, he says, my decision to write a book about laughter raised my eyebrows among academic colleagues, rather as if I decided to follow some unsavory guru or decided to become a used car salesman. Um, And this kind of scepticism is prevalent in other fields as well. Um, People like me, and we occasionally call ourselves comedemics, which is our our favourite portmanteau word, are occasionally accused in the press of working in a loonyversity. Thank you very much, Daily Mirror. Um, This was sent to me by uh, my friend Oliver Double, who is the head of drama at the University of Kent where you can indeed do a master's degree in stand-up comedy. And when I said to Ollie, I said, what did you think of this? What did you think of the Daily Mirror uh, representing your work like this? He says, I was disgusted. Only second? Next year, I'm taking on the bastards at Surf Science and Technology, and we're going for number one. Um, But this is not an entirely unusual position, even among writers. Dear old E.B. White who you may know as being the author of Charlotte's Web, once said, analyzing humor is like dissecting a frog. No one is interested, and the frog dies. 
um, which is not the great, greatest motivation for people like me, uh, I have to say. And um, there are sort of a number of main objections to the serious academic study of comedy. Uh, one being, uh, there is really no intellectual value in sitting around discussing jokes. Okay? Uh, that there is no practical usage. You're not exactly discovering the cure for cancer, Tim, are you? Uh, that's the second one I get. Um, it's beyond understanding. Some people are just funny. It's just the way they are. They have funny bones. It's magic. It's in the ge- it's not even in the genes because you can analyze that. It's just something that happens. And not only would your work be of no value and useless, but it's impossible to do anyway. Uh, the next one is analysis destroys the humor. As soon as you start trying to work out why a joke is funny, it ceases to be so. Therefore, you end up destroying the very thing that you're actually looking into. Um, I mean, you're normally getting slightly depressed at this stage in the, uh, in the discussion, but, you know, that's parents for you. And um, <laughs> then they finish with the, uh, the final one, which is um, there is an inherent contradiction. If you try and be serious about humor, it's ridiculous. Um, you know, it, it's a subject which resists seriousness. Um, but I want to challenge this tonight. And what I want to um, plagiarize, Howard Jacobson and others, um, who said when he picked up the Booker Prize in 2010, we have created a false division between laughter and thought, between comedy and seriousness. And Provine, elsewhere in his uh, rather wonderful book, um, mentions that given the social and emotional potency of the sound, our ignorance of laughter is remarkable. Now, some of you may note that that was written 15 years ago. So one of the things I'm going to do over the next 40 minutes or so is go over some of the remarkable research that's being done in the field of comedy and humor studies. Um, And what I thought I'd do, uh, first of all, is teach you a little bit of humor theory, or traditional humor theory. This is a traditional classification that you will find in lots of books sometimes referred to as Raskin's tripartite classification. You can see I've done a PhD. I've read all this stuff, you know. And you'll find this, you'll find this appearing in Critchley's On Humor, in Billig's Laughing uh, and Ridicule, in Greaves and Carson, Naked Gape, Naked Gape, and Naked Jape, and many others. And there are three principal models of theory that occupy traditional humor theory. There is superiority theory, which goes back to Thomas Hobbes, who in 1650 said that laughter is the sudden awareness of the eminence in ourselves compared with the infirmity of others. Not always a happy man, Thomas Hobbes. (laughs) Example, George Bush once said, the problem with the French is they have no word for entrepreneur. Infirmity of George Bush, eminence of ourselves. Yeah, okay, got that one. Um, incongruity theory goes back to, oh, at least 1790, when in the Critique of Judgment, Immanuel Kant said, laughter is strained expectation into nothingness. Example, here's my stepladder. It's not my biological ladder. <laughs> groan at me. <laughs> um, okay, incongruity theory. Strained expectation of nothingness. Uh, release, relief theory. Goes back, oh, at least to Sigmund Freud, who in 1900, I think, possibly 1902, can't quite remember, wrote a book called Jokes and Their Relationship to the Unconscious. When he talked about the uh, jokes being a socially uh, sanctioned space for dealing with the taboo, often related to uh, sexual neuroses, going back to childhood, violence, uh, damage to our most loved... Uh, I loved ones. Uh, example. How do you make a dog drink? Put it in a blender. <laughs> it's a joke. Um, <laughs> and these series, I think, are slightly problematic for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, if you look at superiority theory, this eminence in ourselves, I think not always when we see somebody in a terrible situation, when we see some cancer patient, do we immediately burst into hilarity and the awareness of ourselves. Um, It seems to be um, patchy at best, that model. 
And one thing I want to talk about, the problem with these models, is they locate an explanation for laughter largely in the person doing the laughing. And I will talk a lot about uh, relationships and social interactions and some of the really interesting stuff that's going on in humor research. Uh, yes, the academic empire strikes back. Since Provine is, 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 Provine is complaining about the lack of uh, knowledge of laughter, there are remarkable things going on in the UK and elsewhere. In the UK, we had the Playing for Last conference at De Montfort, started in 2007, the International Comedy Conference at Salford, the London Comedy Forum, Brunel starting their enormous comedy research centre in 2013, Surrey University starting the British Institute for Humor Research, 2009, who were wise enough to fund my doctorate, so they must be good. Uh, we have comedy degree courses, Southampton Solent, comedy writing and performance, and there are a plethora of undergraduate courses when you can look at comedy. Um, and what I want to do over the next 35 minutes <laughs> is look at some of the my top 10 areas of research which I think is introducing or uh, discovering interesting ideas relating to humour and comedy. First of all, the study of health and well-being Laughter, as they say, is the best medicine, though you may find antibiotics are quite good too. But um, There's a lot of work being done in the value of laughter to health. Laughter will relax your whole body. A good hearty laugh relieves physical tension and stress, leaving your muscles relaxed for up to 45 minutes earlier. Laughter boosts the immune system. Laughter decreases stress hormones and increases immune cells and infection-fighting antibodies, thus improving your resistance to disease. Laughter triggers the release of endorphins. The body's natural feel-good chemicals. Endorphins promote an overall sense of well-being and can even temporarily relieve pain. Laughter protects the heart. Laughter improves the function of blood vessels and increases blood flow, which can help protect you against a heart attack and other cardiovascular problems. Psychological benefits of laughter. Laughter dissolves distressing emotions. You can't feel anxious, angry, or sad when you're laughing. Or perhaps you can, but it's kind of hard. <sighs> laughter helps you relax and recharge. It reduces stress and increases energy, enabling you to see focused and accomplish more. Humor shifts, shifts perspectives, allowing you to see situations in a more realistic, less threatening light. A humorous perspective creates psychological distance, which can help you avoid feeling of not having the whole sentence on your slide. <laughs> it doesn't help you avoid feeling. <laughs> it helps you avoid feeling something. Um, social benefits of laughter. Be more spontaneous. Laughter helps respond quickly. Brevity is a soul of wit. You let go of defensiveness. Laughter helps you forget judgments, criticism, and doubts. It releases inhibitions. Your fear of holding back and holding on are set aside. Express your true feelings. Deeply felt emotions are allowed to rise to the surface. And there's a lot of work being done in these areas, which I've summarized in a very terrible undergraduate teaching three pages of bulletin points kind of way but um, contact me if you want the name of the academics working in these areas you may have seen that on television uh, a few weeks ago with Nina Conte working in hospitals uh, as a giggle doctor it was interesting to me that they uh, used to be called clown doctors who entertain children sick children but they had to change it from clown to giggle due to the negative associations with the word clown, and they couldn't get the funding. <laughs> Which was, as someone who's taught clown at university, it really kind of annoys me <laughs> that people, the, the very word I teach has negative associations. But that's kind of quite an interesting area. Um, the, one of the last uh, really interesting conferences I went to uh, an academic from the University of Hull, Dr. Louise Peacock, was talking about an organization called Clowns Without Borders who entertain children in refugee camps. They do rather wonderful work. Um, 
in your most refugee camps, NGOs, governments, understandably, focus on the practical. They focus on food and clean water and medicines and shelter and the sort of things you would imagine are essential to people in crisis. And what Clowns Without Borders do is they go around and they entertain children so they can remember or rediscover play and laughter. And again, there is some rather wonderful research being done as to the benefits of addressing potentially traumatized children. Um, some years ago, I published an article, Pack Up Your Troubles and Smile, 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 <laughs> which was a response to my time in Northern Ireland. Um, I went to Belfast as a researcher several years ago, and I was writing rather earnest articles on theatrical responses to the troubles. And I was struck by the comedy. And this is in the late 90s when the uh, Good Friday Agreement was only a few years older. The comedy among the people I met, the jokes they were telling. And I was also struck by the number of plays I came across in Northern Ireland that dealt with such a serious issue in a comic way. Um, and it was that moment that I stopped writing rather bad book chapters on terrorism <laughs> and started writing possibly equally bad book chapters on comedy. Um, one of my favourite stories from uh, Northern Ireland, and uh, our friend from Northern Ireland will perhaps confirm if this is true or not. Um, some years ago, the council decided they needed a new sport that would bring together the two communities. So if you go to Belfast, you find an enormous ice hockey stadium. An attempt to invest in a sport that was not divided on sectarian grounds. And being a North American sport, the team had to have a city name like the Belfast Sharks or the Belfast Broncos or something. And the story goes that the council organized a poll to find out what the name of their team should be that would re-establish community, pride. And the most common answer was the Belfast Bombers. <laughs> and the story goes that the council put an ad in the paper saying they didn't think this was very funny and could people please take it a little more seriously. But they were taking it seriously because humour has a wonderful therapeutic value. If you can laugh at something it ceases to be scary, it ceases to be terrifying. If you can laugh with other people, you're sharing an experience. Um, it's very important, I think. Um, one of the most popular plays in Northern Ireland when I was there in the late 90s was The History of the Troubles, according to my da, um, which is really a play about the history of the Troubles, but done as a series of, a series of quite broad and often quite physical jokes. Um, and again, I remember sitting there thinking, this is very important to uh, people uh, creating a sense of comic distance from their troubled past. Dave Pitt is a comedian. Uh, rather lovely man, Dave. I like Dave a lot. Uh, wrote a book called Starting Out in Stand-Up, or How Stand-Up Saved My Life and How It Could Save Yours. Uh, Dave started doing stand-up several years ago for a number of reasons. One was a way of coping with depression. And a little quote at the bottom there. Before there, the audience were, her were hearing the rants of a depressive. Now they were hearing the rants of a recovering depressive. Bert is his alter ego. Somebody who grips him in the terrors of depression. And it was in the affirmation of an audience an audience laughing and smiling as he told them terrible stories of depression that enabled him to cope with it. There is interesting research being done on the generation of laughter as a sort of self-medication. Um, and Dave's book is, is, is worth reading. Study of ethics. A lot of work being done in comedy and ethics. Um, fascinating subject. Um, another great long quote, very bad presentation technique, but never mind, which comes from this book by Sharon Lockyer and Michael Pickering. We all make jokes, but most of us are at times uncertain about how to respond when a joke is taken as or even suspective of being offensive, either to ourselves or others. We are uncertain about how to register the offense without seeming to lack a sense of humor 
or without inviting the accusation of being moralistic, intolerant, or in what is now an uninspected term of condemnation. Politically correct. Fascinating issues. Uh, and when I, when I teach ethics to my first-year undergraduates, one of the ways into teaching this is to discuss comedy and discuss those sorts of ideas. And the question is I get them to thinking about this idea only kidding, just joking, which Billy, Billy establishes is one of the uh, a phrase which is common in many, many, many languages. This idea that if you're joking, you are somehow separate from a certain degree of criticism. Yes, I can be abusive to you, but I'm only joking. <laughs> I'll lighten up. Um, and it's kind of an interesting about, about how that operates. Offensiveness. Do we have a right to offend? Um, perhaps a very important issue at the moment. And it's a very interesting topic about how we draw those kind of lines. Ownership. Um, you may well re- recognize Chris Rock, uh, the American comedian who does a very famous set, uh, which there is a refrain running through it. And the refrain is, I love black people, but I hate niggers. And there's questions of who is allowed to tell uh, jokes about other ethnicities. Where do we draw lines? There's a campaign on the London clubs at the moment. Uh, Rape is no joke. And comedy is kind of interesting to me from an ethical point of view because comedy is transgressive. Comedy is naughty. Comedy is about doing things that you're not really allowed to do, but where do we draw those lines? Um, I have sat for more times than I care to think in London comedy clubs and heard people say things like, I was making love with my girlfriend, and then the bitch woke up. doesn't get a laugh from me either. But where do we draw lines on what is acceptable and what is not? Do anyone know who was the most popular stand-up comedian in the UK in the 1980s and 1990s in terms of ticket sales and DVD and video sales? Sorry? Yeah. <laughs> Very good. By some margin. Uh, Roy Chubby Brown, um, who very rarely gets on television. And again, it's kind of interesting to me. There is an argument that will go that Jeremy Clarkson has managed to survive 27 years on television (laughs) and Chubby Brown never gets on television because Jeremy Clarkson is a lot more middle class. Rather lovely player. I'm very fond of called Comedians by Trevor Griffiths. And there's a character in it called Eddie Waters who is a teacher of comedy. And he talks about the end when he was part of a liberation forces in a concentration camp and he says I discovered there were no jokes left every joke was a little pellet a final solution are there places where it were, which are literally beyond a joke where we can't discuss comedy I don't know but I think it's a really interesting question to discuss um, teaching which I do a little bit of, a little of uh, believe it or not uh, that's me teaching Clearly boring this woman somewhat senseless. She seems to be somewhat overkeen. Uh, he, he's trying not to fall asleep. Uh, he's wishing he took a different class. <laughs> um, and teaching, as any teachers will know, humor is um, a really interesting value, uh, value really, really useful tool. Uh, another great long quote. Humor can foster analytical, critical, and divergent thinking. Catch and hold students' attention, increase retention of learned material, relieve stress, build rapport between teacher and students, build team spirit among classmates, smooth potentially rough interaction, promote risk-taking, and get shy and slow students involved in activities. And yet, when I did my teaching qualification and they gave me a folder about 300 pages long covering all sorts of things, not one mention of the use of humor in the lecture room. And there's a lot of um, research being done in this area, including by this gentleman, whose name is Dr. Broderick Chow, who occasionally performs stand-up, and when he's not doing that, is an academic at the University of Brunel, who is actively researching uh, the role of humor in teaching. Knowledge exchange. Whoa. One of the things that universities got very excited about in, re- in recent years which is taking their research out into the community, out towards the people, breaking out of the ivory tower. Uh, that is me 
doing something called Bright Club. Anyone been to a Bright Club? Me not being funny in Guildford a couple of years ago. Um, and Bright Club is an interesting kind of phenomenon where academics are actively encouraged to go and perform stand-up comedy about their research. And I've seen some extraordinary performances. I saw a professor of biology giving a performance on the capacity of bats, it may be all bats or one species, I can't remember, to perform penetrative sex and oral sex simultaneously, which requires a remarkable flexible back. Um, and how she explained this apparently did have an evolutionary advantage. Um, I saw, <laughs> what else have I seen? All sorts of things. But that's kind of an interesting way that universities are using humor in order to reach wider audiences with their research. Bright Club. Uh, the last snapshot monitoring exercises in Black Bright Chef undertaken in July 2013. 66% of those attending did not work or study at a university. This is in line with our previous findings. We also surveyed the intending Bright Club at the Bloomsbury Theatre, which is part of UCL, in November 2013. And of the 70 people we spoke to, only 43% were linked to a university in some way. It is extraordinary how the universities have used humour to find that audience. And Bright Clubs now exist throughout the UK, in North America, in Australia, and elsewhere. And this is this is morphed into all sorts of things. Science show off, museums show off, where people who work in either science or in museums are trying to reach out to that audience by using comedy. Uh, this is just one uh, presentation I took uh, for random from the museum show off website. Somebody called Carla Valentine was giving a talk called "It's What Inside That Counts: A Humorous Look at Death by Foreign Object Insertion." using objects from Bart's Pathology Museum. And what's not to laugh about that, frankly? <laughs> well, you know, it's the way to bring the crowd into your museum, I guess. Um, and my own field, my own field, which, again, believe it or not, is in fact, fact stand-up. Um, comedy interests me and laughter interests me for a whole series of reasons. One, it is a mirror phenomena, by which I mean that we will often laugh simply because other people are laughing. Which again is extraordinary. We don't cry just because other people are crying. If we walk into a room full of people shrieking, we won't naturally start shrieking. We may be a bit surprised. We may be slightly perturbed. But we're not going to sympathetically start shrieking with them. But laughter, if you walk into a room full of people laughing, um, you'll often start laughing with them, even though you don't know why. And that's kind of interesting. And what I did over a long period of time, was I spent a long time interviewing comedians, comedy audience members, looking at, audi looking at every interview I could find, and a couple of issues became apparent. One, they talked again and again in deeply relationship terms. So going back to my criticism of traditional humor theory, which locates the laughter in the person doing the laughing, it became very apparent to me that laughter at least in terms of talking to comedy audiences and comedians, was deeply embedded in relationships, a deeply social act. Uh, and it was a lot to do with quite intimate and personal relationships. Memories of parents came up again and again and again. Just a couple. Um, uh, my first admission from Billy Connolly, VHS Tate, which belonged to my dad. My dad's always been into comedy as an audience member. Uh, and this is actually Ken Dodd in conversation with Dawn French. Tell me, do you seek anyone's approval? Yes, yes, very much so. Who's? And most of the audience. And I thought about this, and then who do they represent? Who do they represent? Almost certainly it's your parents. Your parents. You're showing off in the front room, putting on your mother's hat, and acting silly. Yes. Yes, I think so. Yes. There's work being done by an academic called uh, Ian Angus Wilkie, a uh, rather uh, former actor, on the long-lasting significance of laughter relationships between babies and their primary caregiver. Um, and he, he argues quite, quite convincingly, uh, to me at least, 
the, the stand-up comedian and audience relationship is a progression of those early laughter relationships that exist in early infancy. Um, so there's work being done in that area. Empathy, identification. I feel they're being themselves, and I'm judging them as a person. There is a feeling that I know these people. Uh, audience member talking about their comedy experience. Uh, you're selling your ideas and your thoughts. They want a human connection with you. Um, the comedian you know may know called Shappy called Sandy. Notions of authenticity. What do you like least about live stand-up comedy? Acts faking they are enjoying themselves. Or like Jack Whitehall pretending to be irate about things that aren't important. And then there's a quote from David Baddiel. If they get a sense that it's true, they will laugh. And if they don't think it's true, they won't laugh. Making friends. What do you like best about live stand-up comedy? When it caters to the specific audience and location, as it makes it feel more personal. When it feels like we are friends. And good old Dave again. When I was in a band, I used to think, are they really paying attention? People would carry on talking and you'd think, do they really care? Were they actually listening? Did it make any difference to them? You get a much clearer sense of that answer as to all of that in stand-up. And it was doing all these interviews that I began to quite profoundly change my way of thinking about, about comedy. Um, there's a quote from a, a Dutch professor, Giselinde Kuipers. I've never actually spoken to her in person. <laughs> um, laughter and humor are like an invitation, be it an invitation for dinner or an invitation to start a conversation. It aims at decreasing social distance. Why are Christmas cracker jokes so terrible? Would you like Christmas cracker jokes to be good? <laughs> Wouldn't it be terrible if they were genuinely witty? If they were standing around, sitting around your Christmas table and there was such a witty, sophisticated joke that two people got it. There was some, uh, you know, manual Kant pun or something going on. And the rest of the dinner table are sitting there going, well, I have no idea why they're, why they're laughing. I mean, ridiculous. I mean, Christmas Rapper jokes are meant to be bad so everybody can join in a collective act of groaning, a collective experience. It's that bringing people together. Um, the University of Surrey, uh, bizarrely, um, asked me to write a press release about something I'd published uh, some months ago. And in my final sentence... I talked about comedy replacing religion, and they made me take it out. <laughs> Apparently, this was, this was inappropriate for some reason. Um, but I, I'm working on a book at the moment, and sorry, sorry, but I'm putting it back in. Um, that's kind of, kind of where I come from. And if we're talking about relationships, hey, let's go all the way. <laughs> let's talk about gender and sex and sexuality. And again, there's really interesting work being done by people in these fields as well. Um, <laughs> there have been a couple of studies I've read of uh, dating sites, internet dating sites, um, and also various other survey material. And there is a lot of evidence suggesting that when women, heterosexual women, are looking for a man, a boyfriend, someone to date, above all else, the quality they prize is, will he make me laugh? More important than looks, physique, money, education, job, am I going to be entertained? Which is quite interesting in itself. It's perhaps even more interesting because this is usually a one-way street. Uh, men tend not to give the same answer. If anything, they're slightly intimidated by funny women. Um, there was uh, one, one study I read which suggested that um, if, a, if a man wants to... I beg your pardon, if a woman wants to seduce the man of her, her dreams, then one of the strategies she should employ is to laugh at all of his jokes, which he will find wonderfully attractive, though it's probably a good idea to stop laughing when he takes his trousers off. <laughs> Bit of advice there. Um, so that's kind of one thing that sort of interests me. And what's also interesting me is... The idea you sometimes get, including from highly intelligent men who I assume is popular in something like Oxford Skeptics in the Pub, Christopher Hitchens, who wrote a long article for Vanity Fair 
on why women are not funny. Lee Mack, Desert Island Dicks, 2013, echoing the same, same idea, which is demonstrably not true. <laughs> but you still get this idea going on. And I'll come on to a moment why I think this happens. Uh, and you get a justified backlash against people like Mack and people like Hitchens. Uh, if I can remember what my order my slides are in. Because I think comedy is also really interesting when you're looking about how patriarchy works. Um, this is a friend of mine, a rather wonderful political activist, graduate from this university in Oxford, and a comedian, Kate Smirthwaite. And when I interviewed Kate, she said, audiences often have a conscious or unconscious preference. Some audience members will just leave when I'm introduced because they don't think they like women comics. The assumption that my gimmick is being a woman. <laughs> Plus, if you have an opinion, you're a ball buster. If you don't, you're too girly. Um, there is no doubt that uh, the professional comedy scene is dominated by men. And my view, it's a reflection on comedy's association with power. And comedies, therefore, by association, uh, links into power structures, including social power structures, such as um, patriarchy. He laughed in my face. The idea that comedy is often associated with humiliation. Um, and there are interesting ideas coming out of um, evolutionary research. The idea that we have developed this notion of ridicule as a means of curbing certain behaviours that were not in the interests of the group. Again, that interests me because I'm interested in comedy placed in that social context. And there's also interesting ideas that are talking about how laughter in particular, the physical vocalisation of laughter, again had an evolutionary function of signalling to a potential mate that you were smart enough to understand the incongruity, the absurdity, the ridiculousness, and therefore there would be a benefit in having you as a mate. And therefore anybody who has basically been vocalising laughter tonight, they are sending out a signal <laughs> to anyone else in the room that they may be a potentially good person to reproduce with. So some of the work uh, says. Um, I'm also very interested in this, what I call the sexual ambiguity of humour. Um, and I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. And what I mean by that is probably best described in a short story by Irving Welsh. And I've actually copied the entire story. Uh, Irving Welsh, as you probably know, is the, the author of Trainspotting and other novels. When he wrote this story, which is, you said when we embarked on this great adventure together that lots of laughter was essential in a relationship. I agreed. You also made the point that a great deal of sex was of equal importance. Again, I agreed wholeheartedly. In fact, I remember your exact words. Laughter and sex are the barometers of a relationship. This was a statement you made, if I remember correctly. Don't get me wrong, I couldn't agree more, but not at the same time. <laughs> you, blank, blank, uh, reminds me of the line that um, uh, one or two comics have used, which is, uh, there's nothing worse than the sound of one person clapping particularly during sex. Um, so what interested me about this was this idea that... Well, let me tell you a story. Uh, a few years ago, I was in my office in the English department of the University of Surrey, and I was marking some essays. Uh, interestingly enough, also by Irving Welsh. And a student had informed me that uh, Renton takes heroin in order to reach a state of Nevada. And at that point, I decided to take a break... And I, got an invita and I checked my emails, and I got an invitation to attend a meeting of the Erotic Book Club. <laughs> I thought, well, <laughs> I don't, how often are I likely to get an invitation like that, frankly? And it does exist. Google it. Um, so I went to a meeting of the Erotic Book Club, um, and this is their reading list. <laughs> um, and I suspect you don't know many of these any more than I do, I suppose. We don't have many fans of macho sluts. I don't know. Maybe we do. Um, but what was interesting about the meeting was how incredibly earnest it was and how incredibly serious. Um, and I sort of decided to sort of lighten the mood in this meeting. And they were sort of talking about things like uh, BDSM. And I said, off the top of, my, uh, top of my head, that's funny. I took some driving lessons with them. Not... <laughs> 
Not one laugh. Not one laugh. <laughs> and on the way home, I began to think about the literature I like that I would, and the films I like that I would perhaps think of in terms of being quite sexy. And I thought of G.H. Lawrence and Henry Miller and the wonderful end of James Joyce's Ulysses. If you haven't read it, read Ulysses. It's a tremendous novel. The chess game in the Thomas Crown Affair. Last Tango in Paris. The wonderful love scene in Don't Look Now. Uh, great Japanese film called I, I, I Know Karida. There's not many laughs in any of these. <laughs> and I began to think, isn't it interesting? And I keep reading these studies about how people are attracted to funny people, particularly women attracted to funny men. That kind of works the other way sometimes as well. But when I look at what I consider to be the literature of sexual attraction, suddenly humour has somehow disappeared. And I thought there was a very interesting ambiguity there. Um, and I wrote an article called uh, Sex Pies and Jenny Cooper. <laughs> there were some professors who just think I'm just an idiot. Uh, Sex Pies and Jenny Cooper, an analysis of humour and the erotic, when I tried to talk about the this apparent ambiguity, this apparent tension. Uh, there are very interesting models that talk about the erotic as a act of increasing tension. You get more and more fervid, more and more worked up. And humour is about the release of tension. Tension, punchline. And how there is an interesting and contradictory relationship here. Um, I constructed an argument trying to explain this when I, I, I talked about all sorts of things. Joking being a substitute for erotic experience. Let me just check my watch. Oh, my word. Um, <laughs> I'm going to rush through this uh, humour and all sorts of things as a means of discussing that um, apparent ambiguity. Um, I'm not entirely happy with the article. So if anyone has any views on this, do send me an email. I'd love to get into a discussion. I'd also like to get into a discussion with how that relationship between humour and attraction may operate differently between men and women and may operate differently between heterosexuals and members of the LGBT community. Um, because my sense is it does, but I don't know how. Um, it's one of the things I, I'm interested in exploring. Um, God, I'm only at number four, study of politics. Um... Having no sense of humour is often seen as being an incomplete person. There's a wonderful anecdote about Ian Duncan Smith when he took his first ministerial post, when he was working for Nicholas Soames. Nicholas Soames, a great bon viveur, having crates of champagne in, flown in from Paris. Three-hour lunches, and Ian Duncan Smith went teetotal as soon as he became a minister. And Soames began to refer to him as Ian Drunken Smith. And this came to the attention of Ian Duncan Smith, who went to see Nicholas Soames and said, Minister, I understand you're referring to me as Ian Drunken Smith. And, and Soames said, well, it's just a joke, <laughs> only kidding. And um, Ian Duncan Smith then assured him that he was entirely sober during the work. And when Nicholas Soames came to choose between whether to support Kenneth Clark or Ian Duncan Smith, one of the reasons he gave for supporting Clark was that he couldn't possibly support somebody who had absolutely no sense of humour whatsoever. Um, and I wonder also, I wonder about Boris Johnson, and who doesn't? Uh, but I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if this playing the fool is an interesting way of deflecting questions he doesn't want to deal with. But again, the study of the role of comedy in political discourse is really interesting. I won't read this long quote out, but it's a, it's, a, it's a quote from the International Journal of Public Opinion in 2009, which suggested that the, the research they'd done was that people were more likely to have their views influenced by comedy programs than the news. <laughs> and again, I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> um, and what that then may have to say about how politicians should then adapt their engagement with the public. I don't know. Um, and also about what is the nature of this um, influence. Let me read another long quote. Ter terrible presentation technique. Uh, Moriel shows how humorous amusement and negative emotions can replace one another. In his view, the humorous message is able to make people more flexible, flexible mentally than emotionally. Humor often exaggerates 
and so can provide imaginative ballast for stereotypes and the reinforcement of xenophobic constructions of the other. But in delighting in incongruities, it can expose delusions, pretensions, duplicities and hypocrisies, not least among those in authority and positions of power. And if we're saying that these programs are more influential than the news, I wonder what this does to the general body politic. There's a very interesting book published last year called uh, The Cultural Setup of Comedy, when uh, an American academic, Judy Weber, argues that actually programs like The Daily Show, uh, Colbert Report, for all their liberal um, intentions, actually have a problematic effect of bolstering a conservative agenda. Uh, it's a complicated argument she puts forward, but just for that, you know, this shortcoming is particularly relevant because the consumption of such comedy may provide reassurance that there is dissent. Um, she goes into a much more complicated analysis than that. But again, this, this idea of looking at how comedy is affecting our political discourse, I think is a really interesting idea. Um, I suspect there are a lot of science and scientists in the room, and I'm not really a science. My, my background is performing arts. Um, but I, so I talk a little bit about science. Um, Professor Sophie Scott, hurrah, uh, from UCL, um, is a neuroscientist and has done some extraordinarily interesting work. Um, one of the things she does in her work on brains is to establish that the brain not only changes when we laugh, but it changes before we laugh. There is a laughter expectation. There is a sense of the brain going in to a laughter mode. And for people like me that work in the performing arts, this is a game changer. Because rather than laughing about what, laughing, rather than asking why a play is funny, it begins to be about asking why the expectations have been created in an audience to think it is going to be funny. And we're beginning to ask different questions. Now this is my all-time favorite slide. Uh, rat tickling, I know at least two professors who spend their time tickling rats. And why not? I feel there's a rat tickler in all, in all of us. Um, another, in 2012, a new study published in the journal PLOS1 provided evidence that tickling not only made these rats laugh, but made them optimistic as well. <laughs> For this study, a large group of rats were taught to listen to one of two tones, press a lever, and then either receive a mild electric shock or a tasty treat. They quickly learned to press the lever only when hearing the tone for food and avoided the lever when, when the shock-associated tone was played. However, when a new and ambiguous tone was played, the rats were suddenly given a choice, risk the lever or play it safe. Amazingly, the researchers found that the rats who were tickled right before being presented with this choice were far more likely to take the risk compared to rats who were simply handled before choice time. The study's authors suggested that the tickled rats were put in a better mood by the tickling, prompting them to be more optimistic about the tone. Yes, so if you have a rat at home and you want to cheer it up and you want it to be optimistic about its life, give it a tickle. Um, but again, uh, to try and make a bit of a leap, um, again, I know people in business who are looking at, looking at humour. Uh, this is Moriel, again, uh, uh, businesses which encourage humour also tend to be, uh, uh, they take more risks, they don't worry about making mistakes, they take initiative, they spend energy on solutions, uh, they shoot for total quality, they don't worry about breaking things, they focus on opportunities, <gasps> they experiment, they take responsibility, they try easier, not harder, they take calmness, smile and have fun. Um, and again, there is maybe an assumption that laughter in the workplace may have some value, but it's only in recent years that we begin to see a proper, proper serious research here. Uh, as someone who teaches comedy, and I've enjoyed this year particularly at Loughborough teaching comedy to some of my students, um, I think I'm teaching them things which are important. <laughs> I may be delusional, <laughs> and obviously I get paid to do it, so I may, may, maybe I have an incentive. But I think I'm teaching them to inquire intellectually across a broad range of disciplines. We look at psychology, ethics, performance, gender politics in a huge range. And I think that is good for them, to think in that broad way. We engage in some of the great thinkers that have ever been. Kant, Nietzsche, Nietzsche, <laughs> Nietzsche uh, Freud, etc. 
And in teaching them comedy, I think I also teach them important transferable skills. Uh, my students are wonderful at presentation skills because they're used to doing stand-up. I've seen students grow in confidence. I've seen students grow in dealing with their own personal issues. Um, I saw a student studying comedy, studying stand-up at Middlesex, and he was a young man who was both gay and Christian and was having issues reconciling his own identity. And some of his fellow students were perhaps not as supportive as they may have been. And he did a wonderful set about his experiences and that sense of affirmation, that sense of him saying, this is who I am, and please accept it, was very palpable. Um, students learn to respond to the unexpected. They learn entrepreneurial skills. They start wanting to start clubs to uh, contact producers, to do open spots. They start wanting to write, as I did when I was a student for the BBC, for the BBC Comedy. They start getting engaged in professional practice. Very young. And I think I'm not just teaching them frivol frivolous nonsense. Well, I don't think I am. And I'm going to finish by saying, I think humour is important because it's complicated. We have embarrassed laughter, nervous laughter, evil laughter. And for me, it gets to the core of what makes us human beings. If you look at the higher primates, you will see behavioural patterns that are very similar to ours. You will see bereavement. You will see very uh, complicated social and psychological structures. What you very rarely see is joke-telling. You will see a certain amount of laughter, including in rats and in chimpanzees, almost entirely associated with physical contact or running, uh, chasing. Uh, we are the only species that has an ability to look at something and, and laugh. Um, you don't see squirrels collapsing in hysterics when another squirrel falls out of the tree <laughs> onto the ground. And to me, when we look at our capacity for laughter, it is one of the defining characteristics of what makes us human. Laughter is common among every culture, every people that I've never read about, but it's also very specific. Different communities will laugh in different ways at different things. So I would just finish with a quote from... The late, great Charlie Chaplin, to me, a day without laughter is a day wasted, not just because um, it's a day without the maximum joy, but it's a day without the engagement in, in so many ideas that are so new and so open and that I find endlessly fascinating. Um, thank you very much.